Good morning. This is the burner. I am James Butler, and it is Friday, the fifth of June, and we are still in lockdown. Although you wouldn't know it to hear Tory ministers talk about it. And just at the top of the show here, I want to let you know that there's a little announcement about the future of the burner at the end of this show. So do stick around for that. We're at a curious stage in the pandemic in the UK. It isn't as if there isn't news happening. There is. At yesterday's briefing, Grant Shapps revealed that it would become mandatory to wear face coverings on public transport after non-essential businesses open on the 15th, something that has been pushed for by Sadiq Khan, and that one wonders if it might have happened sooner had they not wanted to uh, uh, fail to, to avoid bowing to a demand from a Labour politician. Forecasts for recovery look slow. OBR estimates of the Treasury spend creep upwards. The Chancellor's direction over the coming months looks less certain as he tries to choke off the temporary but enormous interventions in the economy. Uh, The new R numbers, the infection numbers, the rate of infection numbers which are published today from two sources, uh, also still look pretty high. That is to say there's much that's going on that is serious, uh, though it is a seriousness to which we have become perhaps accustomed. So yes, we're at a curious stage where the torpor of in-betweenness has set in, where no one's quite sure what's actually happening, uh, why we're easing off the lockdown despite having still a much higher rate of infection uh, and deaths per day than other countries who locked down harder and earlier and who brought their death rate right the way back down before opening back up. What had been at first denial and then public panic now switches on the government's part at least over to almost a kind of boredom, so too with many of us. The restrictions have chafed, many of us are anxious about our jobs or our futures or our health. Uh, The realisation is gradually settling on us how slow the progress towards a vaccine might be. We miss people. We realise how inadequate our substitutes for actual human presence are. And we fear, and I think this fear is very widespread, we fear a second wave Uh, with ever-diminishing confidence that the government is capable or willing or able to deal with it. It has been ten weeks of lockdown. Shaps was at pains to remind us it's far from over, though it remains to be seen how the government's breezy attitude to the lifting actually impacts on what people do. Certainly a bike ride through central London yesterday didn't show a huge number of people on the streets. As I've said before, my interpretation of what the government is doing here is that it expects to have to lock down again and is therefore easing restrictions for the sake of future compliance and increased economic activity in the present. It's that or it's simple chicken-headed incompetence, which is admittedly also eminently plausible. But ten weeks. I said at the start of the lockdown period, and it's a theme that was taken up by the extraordinary novelist Sam Delaney in The New Yorker uh, a few weeks back, that such a time might well be used to think about looking towards our horizons, that the artificial constriction, a kind of perverse general strike, might allow us to consider the kind of world we want to emerge into on the other side. Of course, we get distracted by worry about our rent or by burnt sourdough or by the thousand incompetences of our government. We are imperfect dreamers disrupted by the obstinacy of the everyday. Nonetheless, even the sudden break in routine, the disruption, the fear or boredom, or even the sense of sudden freedom, at least for some of us, has given many of us pause to think, this this relentless machine which has suddenly stopped, do I want it to start again in the same way? Might I not change it? Some things are hard to see for what they are until they're broken. 
Two things that have been on my mind this week, prompted both by the uprisings in the United States and the wider, longer, flagrant failings of governments on both sides of the Atlantic during the pandemic. Uh, One is the ancient story from the Book of Daniel, one of my favourite books of the Bible, which also contains the first locked room detective story that I know of in world literature, but that's perhaps not a topic for this show. It's the story, though, of the writing on the wall. It's a very famous story. Uh, the decadent king is feasting, he's desecrating the sacred vessels, and when a hand appears and writes on the wall uh, these words, mene, mene, tekel, ufasin, mene, mene, tekel, vipasin, uh, the prophet Daniel is sent for to interpret it and it's and says it means you've been weighed in the balance and you have been found wanting and destruction is coming and sure enough it does come and the wicked king is swept away and of course the story has become proverbial the writing on the wall suggests an inevitable conclusion coming but not yet understood by those to whom it will affect the most why has it been been on my mind and for obvious reasons because i've always thought what the pandemic does is reveal things it makes things clear which are otherwise just implied or politely disregarded but there are a couple of things as well the story asks can you interpret it the message arrives but there's no one immediately who can understand what it means so you need someone who can read the signs and we need interpreters at the moment good interpreters who are not afraid to look at the signs and say what they mean as the prophet told a feasting king destruction would soon rain down on him sometimes the most difficult thing to see is what's right in front of us. The other thing is a line from M. Césaire's discourse on colonialism, uh, that a society which cannot solve the problems it creates is rightly called a decadent society. And that's true, of course, of the colonizer states of Césaire's time, but how much more true and in so many more contexts of the same states and their world system today, it's become so bad that it's tempting to ask that Of all the many problems our society creates, are there any it seems able to solve right now? From lynchings and police violence in the United States to herd immunity and the shrug off incompetence and hollowed out state here, to the gnawing awareness that this is only the first tremor of a far greater cataclysm of poisoned air and water, of biosphere collapse, of climate chaos. Have these 10 weeks allowed us to draw up a balance sheet or a charge sheet for a decadent society? What have we learned? We've learned that we're governed by a class of incompetents and hypocrites, of venal narcissists and sycophants, of cranks and dilettantes, but that's not so shocking a revelation. We've learned that they lie and that they stick by the lie even when the lie is flagrant and dare you to do anything about it, thinking that you can't. We know they're complacent and we know that they were complacent, uh, reluctant to act and that for too long, and maybe it's even still an instinct, their approach was to let it rip through the country and who survives, survives. Herd immunity. We've learned that they're hypocrites, but then we knew that too. Uh, Perhaps more usefully, we had some very clear demonstrations that the hypocrisy is motivated by a basic contempt, both for us as a whole and for the basic expectations of democratic politics in general. We've also learned that we are not who our masters think we are. They think we're made in their image, self-involved, self-interested, venal, uninterested in other people, solipsists seeking really only our own reward. But the instinctive pronoun of the human being is we, not I. Think of the millions who locked down, not because they are themselves at risk of the virus, but in order to support and sustain others in the community in order to save lives. Think of the numbers uh, on movement, on work, on transport, the statistics, they all indicate that we did much of this before the government instructed us to. What a power that is. Think of the networks of mutual aid groups which sprung up like 
sudden flowers in the desert after rain. And what does this tell us about our power, about what's possible, about our instincts in a crisis? But it's also revealed to us, and perhaps reminded us, the extent to which everything is subject to political contention, not only the rafts of odd conspiracy theories from 5G to nanobots to George Soros and so on, but more prosaically the pressures brought to bear on SAGE by the government, or the willingness of particular scientists to bolster a government line. It's also a salutary reminder that as soon as science touches politics, it's no longer simply a question of detached rational inquiry, but much else besides. It has, of course, been used to insulate the government from all political criticism, even to make political decisions appear simply as necessary scientific and technical ones, despite, of course, those decisions being at odds with just about everywhere else. We know that move of old, of course. Where do we know it from? Economics. The huge interventions into the economy which have characterised this period, although temporary, reveal a lot to us about the way in which Tory economic policy is likely to transform both during a prolonged crisis period and a depression, and perhaps outside of it as well, that it will likely be presented in technocratic rather than democratic terms, that is, not subject to contestation, insulated from debate. The initial strategic and avowedly temporary use of the state is likely to become more frequent and less controversial. Strategic support for politically important national industries uh, like planet-choking aviation subsidies, are likely to remain. In the British case in particular, subsidy to inflated asset prices, especially housing, remain crucial in propping up its hollowed-out and financialised economy. But they will look for places to exploit in recovery too, where jobs are likely to go anyway over the next decade, and thus the likely capture, defanging and evacuation of the Green New Deal gutted of all its transformational aspects. There's been briefing in the papers over the last few days that Rishi Sunak is looking at something like a green industrial revolution to undergird his vision of recovery after the pandemic. And perhaps it's worth thinking about it like the NHS. Some kind of public health provision was inevitable after the Second World War, whichever side came into government. It took a government of the left to nationalise the hospital and lift healthcare out of the market model entirely. Thus, incidentally, making it far more durable than any given particular market arrangement, which of course is much easier to shift. So that's the point. You recognise that there is an inevitable shift coming here and try to occupy that terrain. It's also revealed this moment specific conjunctural things about our politics and our parties here in Britain. The Conservative Party, for instance, does appear to be ideologically exhausted and surprisingly empty. Its victory hasn't led to a new Toryism. Its leadership is increasingly concentrated at the very top and has had a knock-on effect of strengthening the power of the executive uh, in our political system as a whole, both in terms of the minimal parliamentary scrutiny uh, that Johnson engages in and his own isolation from his own cabinet. Remember, he's withdrawn into a far smaller group uh, of MPs and cabinet ministers are very often complaining about a lack of consultation of any kind. Um, The Tory party remains... Uh, and has become even even more so an overwhelmingly English party. It also lacks any meaningful renewal from below, given the generational split in political allegiances. But it is also overwhelmingly still a Brexit party, with very paltry vision besides or beyond that, and it has elevated, perhaps fatally, those solipsists and mediocrities who now run the government in a moment of profound national crisis. Thus the slow return of Brexit rhetoric, for instance, in 
uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's exhortations to return to Parliament. The pretext of Brexit hasn't sparked a new Tory vision of the country, uh, of a new political or economic settlement. It's odd in that sense. Uh, It speaks a lot about freedom. It speaks a lot about freedom from the European Union and the ability to determine our own laws. But actually, when you look at it, the propositions for change are really, really marginal. That's been enough, more than enough for now, to uh, ride the wave into power. But in the longer term, it's hard to see whether it will really be sufficient. As for Labour, well, the party has been twisting in the wind a bit. It's obvious that Keir Starmer intends to reap the rewards of patience, that he calculates the electoral benefit will be obvious and sharper if the government's failure cannot be plausibly blamed on the Labour Party. He might be right. I think he's perhaps a little optimistic, but he might be right. At the same time, in the here and now, though, there are people crying out for representation and support, which hasn't always been forthcoming. Uh, Equally, the moment of emergency has displaced, frankly, perhaps somewhat beneficially, the circular firing squad of conversations over who's to blame and how to keep policy commitments alive. The current moment might also be a salutary reminder that there isn't another general election for four years, and that however weak a Tory government might become, it's unlikely to produce one. The last few years have misled us on that. So what do you do in four years of opposition? That's the strategic question. There are two conjunctural notes on that. We've very obviously returned to a period of two-party politics that could be really beneficial, uh, at least in England, if it's properly understood. Uh, Second, the, the, the generation gap in political demography is real. How can that be used? Uh, what does it mean? Is it temporary? Can it be built on? answering those questions will reveal a lot and I think the longer term question here uh, as you know at least one of them uh, and as I've emphasized I think you've heard throughout this show as I've been talking about England rather than Britain is that the way in which all this pans out is going to bring under new stress I think particularly by the end of this year as Brexit rolls down on us new stress on the constitutional arrangements of the UK uh, and will involve the Scottish question in particular so perhaps the English left or to think a little bit more and a little bit more sharply about that question. Of course, this crisis, though, is truly global. And as such, it poses questions not just for us here, but everywhere else as well. The horror show in Brazil, for instance, or of course, in the United States, tells us a lot. The US in particular is increasingly advanced in its decadence. It's insulated political system, the two cheeks of the same arse, as people like to say, uh, or the truly shocking nature of its healthcare system. Uh, the power of the state manifest not in emergency programs to tend to the sick but in police riots as state forces erupt in fury that they fail to get away with lynching another black man two things that perhaps the u.s reveals to us that there's no sitting out the culture war there's no transcending it because culture war is a representation of real political tensions and real political issues which can and do erupt In any case, it seems to me culture war so often is a term that really does tend just to designate parts of political struggle that are awkward or disliked, and not just the methods that are used in the struggle. So it doesn't just refer to a a particular kind of rhetoric or a particular kind of argument, but very often the kind of issues, and those are often to do with race, to do with gender, to do with sexuality, um, that are brought up in culture war as well. Uh, So these are real political questions. Why wouldn't the culture war matter when it's really a conflict about who's allowed to use public space, who's allowed legal protection, who's allowed to be recognised as legitimate? Second, the kinds of politicians we get matters. It matters when socialists hold office, and it matters when offices are held by people like Trump. 
Sure, the inertia of a wider system might constrain him in normal times, and there are internal politics and internal barriers, but at a moment like this, who has political power changes the entire scope of what is or isn't possible. And there are bigger, more global questions as well. What will a pandemic-related global depression do to debt-bonded countries in the global south? What happens when the virus strikes countries with weak and unequal healthcare system? Who gets to own the vaccine? Will a crisis reshape the global order and what will China's role be in it? Is the US's position as a global hegemon crumbling? Behind all this are lurking even more profound questions. How will we deal with climate change if this is our response to the pandemic? In over a decade since the financial crisis, how is it that we're facing another global crisis with the left still on the back foot? Is it possible to look back over the past decade and see, from the perspective of the left, a fabric woven with different threads, from riot to strike to occupy to electoral politics, each of them with different limit points, each feeding back into the movement? Perhaps. When trying to think in these expansive terms, I've been reaching for something that Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright do in their brilliant book on the climate crisis, Climate Leviathan, to try to deduce the contours of a movement by determining what's missing in the things that we've done so far, both the strategies that have failed and the obvious absences from the movement, um, as well as trying to think backwards from the end states that we would want to avoid. And if you think about it that way, where we do not want to go and what has been missing uh, and what the limit points have been, you ask, can they be overcome? Do we need to smash some idols? And where in particular have we found hope? Can we lift our heads to the horizon again? And then you start at least to begin to lay out further coordinates for the future. It's hard to see what's right in front of us sometimes, but we need to read the writing on the wall. Okay, so I promised you an announcement on the burner's future here at the end of the show, and it's become obvious to me, running this show daily over the past 10 weeks or so, uh, that it's found an audience and a niche that I wasn't really expecting. It's also a lot of work, maybe more than is obvious in the final product, which I hope has a degree of ease and elegance even is occasionally funny. But following everything so closely and interpreting daily is a huge task, so we need to think a bit more about how to make it sustainable, a bit more than we already have done. I know I promised that we were thinking about it, but we need to think about it some more. I don't mind confessing to you as well that I'm pretty tired, so I'm going to take a couple of weeks more off the air, maybe until the end of the month. Of course, if anything truly epochal, if anything truly dramatic happens... I will reach for the microphone. But we do need time to think, and to think especially how to fit this show into a wider, retooled Navara audio offer. You will like what's coming, I think. But please do get in touch about it. I really do mean that. And just a note of thanks here at the end. It's truly been an honour and much more fun than I expected to do this show over the past few weeks, even if it's also been a bit stressful and a bit tiring at times. There are huge questions at work in politics at the moment and huge possibilities as well. So thank you to all of you who've been in touch, even those to whom I've struggled to get back to. Sorry about that. But I really do read every email, so please do continue to get in touch while we think about this show's future. You know where I am, james navaramedia.com. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wear a mask, wash your hands, solidarity with the uprising in the United States, and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I will be back soon, I promise. So stay tuned. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.